0: Welcome to Current Radio's Science Station. Please enjoy today's selection of science news. Charlotte, did you catch the recent news about Venus?
1: The detection of oxygen in its atmosphere? Yes, indeed. An intriguing discovery considering Venus has a rather hostile environment dominated by carbon dioxide.
0: That's right. This detection was made possible by an instrument aboard the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, or SOFIA. It's a joint project between NASA and the German Aerospace Center. Fascinating stuff.
1: And it's not just any oxygen they've detected. It's atomic oxygen, which is different from the molecular oxygen we breathe here on Earth. This oxygen is produced on the day side of Venus, when ultraviolet radiation from the sun breaks down atmospheric carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide into oxygen atoms and other chemicals.
0: It's an interesting process. The atomic oxygen is then transported by winds to the Venusian night side. It's a clear example of photochemistry in action triggered by solar UV radiation. It's somewhat comparable to the creation of our stratospheric ozone layer here on Earth, though the context is vastly different.
1: Vastly different indeed, Diego. Venus is known for its thick atmosphere that traps heat, creating a runaway greenhouse effect. It's not exactly a hospitable environment for life as we know it.
0: No, it's not. But these findings are crucial for our understanding of Venus and its evolution. I mean, why is it so different from Earth? These are the questions that scientists like Heinz Wilhelm Hubers and Helmut Wiesemeyer are trying to answer.
1: It's certainly a mystery. Venus is slightly smaller than Earth and is near the inner boundary of the habitable zone around the Sun, yet its conditions are far from what we'd consider habitable.
0: Absolutely, Charlotte. It's a stark reminder of how unique our planet is and why we need to do everything we can to preserve it. It's a thought I find both humbling and motivating.
1: I couldn't agree more, Diego. The universe is a vast and complex place, and we're only just beginning to understand it. Every new discovery brings us closer to answering some of our biggest questions.
0: From the mysteries of Venus and its atomic oxygen, let's now turn our gaze a bit closer to home but still in the vast expanse of space. The origins of life on Earth have always been a subject of great fascination and speculation. It seems that a tiny piece of an asteroid now nestled in London's Natural History Museum might hold some of the answers to this age-old question. Charlotte, have you ever wondered about the origins of life on Earth?
1: Well, Diego, it's a question that has intrigued scientists for centuries, and it seems we're getting closer to finding some answers.
0: Absolutely, Charlotte. A millimeter-sized slice of the asteroid Bennu, considered the most dangerous asteroid in the solar system, has arrived at London's Natural History Museum for analysis.
1: This isn't just any asteroid, Diego. Bennu is a potentially hazardous asteroid with the highest odds of any known space object to strike Earth. But the real interest lies in what's trapped inside.
0: That's right, Charlotte. Scientists believe it could contain the precursors of life on Earth. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson called it the largest carbon-rich asteroid sample ever returned to Earth.
1: And it's not just carbon and water molecules they're interested in. Bennu is a B-type asteroid, which means it contains high amounts of carbon and possibly many of the primordial molecules present when life first emerged
0: on Earth. It's fascinating, isn't it? The building blocks of life might have hitched a ride on a space rock like Bennu. In fact, Some of these building blocks, including uracil, one of the nucleobases for RNA, were recently found on the asteroid Ryugu.
1: And now, with this sample from Bennu, scientists are hoping to find other potential precursors for Earth's biology. But getting the sample wasn't
0: easy, was it? No, it wasn't. It required nearly two years of searching for a landing site on Bennu's craggy surface. The OSIRIS-REx mission had to fire a burst of nitrogen to stick the landing and prevent the craft from sinking through the asteroid.
1: And that blast sent rocks and dust careening around the craft, with some of the rocky debris landing in a canister aboard OSIRIS-REx. Quite a journey for a tiny piece of rock, wouldn't you say?
0: Indeed, Charlotte. And now that the sample has arrived, scientists around the world will begin analyzing it for clues about how our solar system and life on our planet came to be.
1: As Ashley King, A meteorite researcher at the Natural History Museum puts it, Bennu is like the leftover building block of our solar system. By disentangling the story of Bennu, we might just learn about the origin of the solar system and the history of Earth.
0: It's a story that's billions of years in the making, Charlotte, and it's a testament to human curiosity and ingenuity that we're able to reach out into the cosmos and bring back a piece of that story. From the mysteries of our solar system, To the mysteries of a virus that has gripped our planet. Let's now delve into a recent study that has made significant progress in understanding the transmission of COVID-19. Charlotte, let's shift gears to a recent study that's delving into the infectivity of aerosol transmission of COVID-19, particularly in indoor settings.
1: Ah yes, this study has been making waves. It's been known that COVID-19 spreads significantly through aerosols, But there's been a lack of data on how infectious these aerosols actually are.
0: Exactly. And this study has provided some answers. It measured the emission rate of infectious exhaled SARS-CoV-2 and calculated the time needed to inhale an infectious dose. The findings are quite alarming.
1: I can imagine. The study found that an infectious dose can be inhaled within just a few minutes in a typical room with normal or enhanced ventilation. That's quite a revelation, isn't it?
0: It certainly is. And it's not just about the speed of transmission. The study also found that the highest infectivity was found for samples collected close to symptom onset and during singing.
1: So an infected person singing in a room could potentially spread the virus to others in just minutes. That's quite a sobering thought, Diego, especially when we think about all the social gatherings that involve
0: singing. Indeed, it's a stark reminder of how vigilant we need to be. But it's important to note that the study also highlighted the importance of ventilation. The time needed to inhale an infectious dose was shorter in rooms with enhanced ventilation.
1: That's a crucial point. Good ventilation can make a significant difference in reducing the risk of transmission. But Diego, there's another aspect we should discuss. The study mentioned that the time airborne viruses remain infectious is difficult to measure and is altered by local environmental conditions like temperature and humidity.
0: Yes, that's a key factor. The half-life of the virus, or the time the virus remains infectious in air, was one of the least known parameters in the model used in the study. They found that the half-life time of viruses is of less importance in well-ventilated rooms as aerosol particles are physically removed prior to virus inactivation.
1: So it's not just about the amount of virus in the air, but also how long it stays infectious. That's a crucial piece of information for public health guidelines and measures. But I think we should also touch on the fact that this study is the first to measure the emission rate of infectious exhaled SARS-CoV-2.
0: That's right. It's a significant step forward in our understanding of how COVID-19 spreads. And it's a reminder of how much we still have to learn about this virus and its transmission.
1: Absolutely, Diego. As the study concludes, these findings demonstrate the potential of rapid aerosol transmission of SARS-CoV-2 in indoor environments. It's a reminder of the importance of maintaining good ventilation, wearing masks, and practicing social distancing, especially in indoor settings.
0: Well said, Charlotte. It's a reminder that we all have a part to play in preventing the spread of this virus. While we continue to navigate the challenges of the pandemic, it's equally important to remember that our planet is facing another crisis, climate change. From virus transmission to climate transformation, let's now delve into a different yet interconnected topic. Have you ever considered how preserving our natural world might be a key strategy in combating global warming? Let's explore this fascinating perspective. Today, we're discussing a fascinating approach to tackling the climate crisis. Charlotte, have you ever thought about how nature conservation could be a solution?
1: Indeed, Diego. It's not just about reducing emissions and transitioning to renewable energy. There's a growing belief that preserving nature can play a significant role in combating climate change.
0: And this isn't just a theory. The Wildlife Conservation Society, for instance, is actively advocating for this. Monica Medina, their president and CEO, recently had a chat with CBS News about their goals at the COP28 climate summit. In Dubai?
1: Yes, it's refreshing to see such a holistic approach. The climate crisis isn't just a human problem, it's an ecological one, too. It's about time we started recognizing the role nature plays in this global issue.
0: Absolutely, Charlotte. And let's not forget that nature isn't just a victim of climate change, it's also a potential solution. Forests, oceans, and other ecosystems can absorb and store vast amounts of carbon. Right?
1: They're like the Earth's lungs. But they're under threat from deforestation, pollution, and and other human activities. We need to protect them if we're to stand a chance against global warming.
0: And that's exactly what organizations like the Wildlife Conservation Society are trying to do. They're not just preserving nature for nature's sake, but also for the sake of our climate and our future.
1: It's a big task, but one that needs to be undertaken. It's also a reminder that we're all in this together, humans, animals, plants, the entire biosphere. We need to act now, not just for us, but for all life on Earth.
0: Well said, Charlotte. It's clear that the climate crisis requires a multifaceted approach. Reducing emissions is crucial, but so is protecting and restoring nature. It's all interconnected, and we neglect any part of it at our peril.